Turn your Bibles to the book of Haggai, chapter number one tonight. Haggai, chapter number one. Man, it's good to be here tonight. Praise the Lord. I'm glad we have a God that hears and answers our prayers. I'm glad we have a God that cares. I'll go ahead and tell you that uh, you're not often going to find folks in this world and in this life that, that truly, genuinely care the way that the Lord cares. But I'm glad we have a God that cares. Haggai, chapter number one. I'd like to read eight short verses to you tonight. And then I, I always say I've got a short message, and I never do. But I feel like I do. So I guess we'll see how that goes tonight. Haggai, chapter number one, beginning in verse number one. The Bible says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for a perfect, inspired, inerrant Bible, Lord, that we can come to, and it's an authority in our lives. We don't have to come to it and wonder about it. We don't have to come to it and try to puzzle out whether it's true or whether it's real. But we can come to it with confidence in it, Lord, knowing that it is the very words of God and that, Lord, we can hear your voice in its pages. So help us tonight to have our hearts open and to hear your voice in the pages of your word that you might be glorified through our obedience unto you. Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving me. Lord, I'm, I'm not very lovable at times in my life. And Lord, I sure don't do anything worthy of your love. But by your grace, Lord, by your mercy, you love me anyway. And Lord, I'm just so thankful to have a God that loves me to have a Savior that cares about me. Lord, I'm so thankful for you tonight. And help us, Lord, to have gratitude in our hearts, obedience in, in, our, in our minds. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Haggai is one of a trio of books in the Bible that are called the post-exilic books of the Bible. Now, what that means is that they were written after the exile of the children of Israel. Situating this uh, passage in the Bible in the right context, as is always the case, but particularly with this, is paramount to understanding exactly what's going on here. Uh, you'll remember that the uh, children of Israel, the nation of Israel, was after the death of Solomon, uh, during the reign of his son Rehoboam, the kingdom was split into two different kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom of ten tribes that is often called Ephraim, or the kingdom of Israel. And then there was the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they collectively were known as the kingdom of Judah. 
And then the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles respectively follow these two branches of the history of Israel as a people. Well, the first uh, major occurrence that takes place in their history is when the northern kingdom is uh, taken into captivity. And really, the, the term destroyed might be a better term to use. Now, I understand God is going to restore Israel as a nation. I'm glad God can restore things that we've destroyed, aren't you? I'm glad God can give back things that we have lost and he can he can fix things that we've broken. Uh, but really, if we're using an accurate term, I mean, the, the nation was annihilated and uh, the Assyrians, uh, who were the ones that that annihilated them, they intermarried their own people. Uh, they we might could say they culturally salted the land. What I mean by that is they made it such that they would never really be able to say definitively uh, where their heritage lay. That's why it's interesting. A lot of the genealogy and questions surrounding that so much of it is hot air because so much of those northern ten tribes, at least their identity was completely eradicated in many ways. You say, preacher, does that mean there's no more tribes? No, it means this. God knows who they are. Amen. And God's not lost track of them. He knows who they are. Uh, and then the southern uh, kingdom of Judah uh, continued on for uh, about 150 years until uh, they were carried away captive by the Babylonians. Uh, under You are familiar with this name, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the emperor of Babylon. And on three separate occasions, uh, the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, the first two occasions, they did not destroy the city, but on the final occasion, they did. They indeed destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. And then they took the children of Israel. They had done it piece by piece. And that, by the way, is part of the reason, for instance, the book of Daniel. He was part of that first group. He was part of the seed royal of, of, of Judah. And so he was part of that first group that was taken in the initial siege that took place. Whereas you have men like Jeremiah, who was just a prophet of no significance to a pagan culture like the Babylonians, who was left behind. The reason you have a book of lamentations in your Bible is because it was done in this fashion. And he beheld the, the, the city the solitary city that had been laid waste to in the book of Lamentations. Well, the children of Israel then spend 70 years in captivity in the land of Babylon. And we think of this as a time of great oppression and repression for the children of Israel. And certainly in the early days, that is probably true. But one of the interesting things you'll find, uh, God, of course, overthrows the Babylonians and uh, and replaces them uh, with the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus initially uh, and Darius. And uh, during that time, the feelings towards Israel as a people, particularly there in uh, the place they were, began to change. And they were a lot more friendly towards them. They were a lot more accommodating towards them. So much so that we find later on, uh, whenever Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king in the palace at Shushan, goes in before the king and he's troubled, the king wants to know what's bothering him. And uh, Nehemiah says, you know, I'm troubled. I hear that, you know, the city, my, my home lies waste. And the, the king of Persia does something fascinating. He says, well, go back home and fix it, you know. And so, uh, you know, the relations were not as sour as maybe we would sometimes imagine. But we will also find that during that season of time, there were two things that seemed to be in some ways extracted from Israel's psyche as a nation. One was their infatuation with pagan idolatry. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. They replaced it with a sort of self-righteous idolatry that we see very active during the time of Christ. And it's not to suggest that all forms of mysticism were ripped away from Judaism as a culture. Certainly, that's not true. Even today, there is a strong mystical bend towards much of rabbinicalism and things of that sort. But prior to that time, they had been infatuated with particularly Baal worship, although it wasn't just limited to Baal. And God did something interesting, and you can read about this in the Old Testament in the book of uh, Zephaniah, God essentially says, hey, listen, you want Baal, I'll give you Baal worship. And sent them in captivity to what was essentially the, the home place, the headquarters of Baal worship in the ancient world. And through that, he seemed to have extracted from them this fascination with pagan idolatry. But another thing they seemed to lose during that time was their identity as a tent-dwelling people Whose, uh, whose heritage, whose culture, and whose identity was vested deeply and closely in their relationship with the God of Israel. If you study and look at the numbers, for instance, of people that came out of uh, Babylon with uh, Nehemiah and, and, and Ezra, you'll find it was just a slim sliver of what had gone into captivity and even what remained in captivity. They had become, though they had been in many ways cured of their paganism, they had become thoroughly secularized during their time in Babylon. Can I tell you this? And there's not but a hair's breadth of difference between paganism and secular idolatry. But I will say this. One of the things that is rotting our culture at its very core is secularism as a religion. Uh, Materialism, humanism, the infatuation with that which uh, can be owned and possessed and that which is indulged in in the flesh. And so whenever they come back, they return under Nehemiah to build the walls and they, they return under Ezra to, to build the temple and to rebuild it once again. Just a slim fraction of the Israelites actually came with them. Many of them stayed in Babylon. They had families, they had businesses, they had homes. They had through their uh, exile and, and through their captivity, they had in some ways learned a measure of prosperity and comfort and familiarity with that way of life. And so this small group of Jewish repatriates comes back with the desire to rebuild the temple. But you can read in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, and you can see very apparently that uh, whenever they came back to do that, they were met with fierce opposition. And so what begun as an earnest, sincere work soon seemed to fizzle out, such that the scene we come upon in the book of Haggai is of a incomplete foundation to a temple that has been neglected and is overgrown with weeds and is the domain of wild beasts and creatures. And God looks down at this unfinished work and it grieves his heart. And his desire in the books of of, of Haggai and, and Zechariah in particular, his desire is to stir his people back up to continue the work of God. We could summarize it, and I want to preach on this thought tonight on one little phrase there in verse number 8. And it's simply this. He says, build the house. Build the house. Now, I'll go ahead and preface my message not by saying we're not, uh, this isn't and try to get you ginned up for a building program. This isn't and try to get you jazzed up to go start some new ministry. I, I We can always use nursery workers, but we ain't just asking for nursery work. But in a broader sense, this has to do with the investment of our life in the things of God. See, here was the problem. You had a group of people who had invested themselves in the world system. 
And then you had a group of people that had come back, and at one time they had a genuine zeal to spend and be spent on the things of God. But somewhere along the line, they likewise had grown distracted and their life had lost its focus, its zeal, its passion, its devotion to the things of God and instead was focused on the things of this world. I would say that the indictment that is placed against the people of God here could really be said about many of us in the day that we're living in. We've lost sight of what this thing's all about. Man, this thing's it's all going to burn up. You understand that, right? You understand that we're, we're here and, and this is work time. So what do you mean, preacher? We, we ain't going to be serving in heaven. We're going to enter into our rest. This is our time. This life that you have right now is your opportunity to spend all, be spent for the things of God and live a life that is going to count for something. I was talking actually to Miss Debbie on the phone the other day. Uh, we talk six, seven times a week, you know, and we, not really, <laughs> but, but we were talking on the phone. <laughs> she looked shocked. Uh, we were talking on the phone the other day, and we were talking about some of the health battles that she's facing, and uh, we got to talking about work. I don't know why this was on my mind, but I said, you know, it's funny. In society, there's this sort of perceived bargain that is made with the workplace, which is if you'll give the work 40 years of your autonomy and agency, then they will give you back 20 years of complete autonomy and agency. What they do not tell you is that the 20 years they're going to give you back is of markedly less quality than the 40 years that you gave them. And I'm not advocating for us all to become hobos, mind you. I'm just merely saying that, you know, one of the things, and I hope this is true, I, I, I'm not all down on, on my generation and younger and a little older. I, there's, they got problems. Don't get me wrong. They got mountains of them, but, but I also see some encouraging things. And one of the things I'm hopeful that I'm seeing in a lot of young people is, is they're beginning to realize I better live my life now while I have life to live and not just work towards a day when then hopefully I can one day live and have no more life left to live. And I would tell you that very often we do the same thing in regards to our walk with the Lord. We think, well, one of these days I'm going to get serious about the Lord. But I want you to know that if you do that, you're trading your best days now for worse days then. You might say, well, preacher, I'm already. I got a few years behind me. I got a little snow up on top. My best days are behind. Yeah, but the days you're in now are better than the ones that you're going to have. I don't mean to be disheartening. <laughs> but it only gets worse until all of a sudden it's going to get a whole lot better. And so what I'm encouraging you to do tonight is not to lose your focus on the things of God, but instead to, as the text says, build the house. I don't just mean in the context of serving here in the ministries of our church, although certainly that should be a part of it for all of our lives, but I just mean in investing your life in the things of God, living deliberately, intentionally, daily waking up and seeking for an opportunity for God to use your life for His glory, for His honor, for His purposes. Notice three things with me tonight and then I'll be done. I want you to notice first off the project. Now, the project is simply defined essentially in three words. Build the house. 
They knew what this meant. They didn't have to ask what house because God had already talked about what house. He says in verse number two, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, this people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So the obvious inference is this, go build the Lord's house. But I want you to notice some of the obstacles they had to overcome in doing that. And let me remind you that any work of God will be faced with obstacles. Only the works of men have the skids greased. Only the works of men have the cooperation of society. The works of God are always faced with opposition and with obstacle. And if you're going to invest your life in the things of God, you're going to have to do it in spite of some things. Sometimes it helps to do it to spite some things. I'll just be honest with you. But you're definitely going to have to do it in spite of some things. Well, things like what? Well, number one, I would say this, in spite of the enemies that you're going to face. Now, some of you are going to say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher, I don't have no enemies. Well, you might have more than you think. But even setting aside what we think of as a personal enemy that has, has enmity or animosity towards us, I will tell you that there is enmity against the work of God in this world. The very first phrase in verse number two is a blanket indictment of the attitude of the people that they were not interested in seeing the Lord's house completed. Now, we could have all sorts of opinions as to the state of these people. Were they, were they people that believed on the Lord, but they were simply apathetic or dis, you know, disheartened, disillusioned? But it doesn't change the fact that sometimes when you serve God, you're going to have to do it in the face of people who do not believe that a work of God can be done and people who often will actively oppose the work of God in your life. I would say it this way, in a lack of security and peace. We have for a long time felt as though it was our God-given right to carry out the work of God in security and peace. But I would have you know that never has that been a part of God's, let's use the term bargain, I don't, I don't, it's probably a crass term, but, but God's agreement with His people. Never has He said you won't face opposition. In fact, the contrary is quite true. All throughout the Bible it's made abundantly clear that this world will stand in opposition to what God's wanting to do in our life. Never are we told, now we rest upon the peace of God's promises, but never are we told that we will be able to be left alone. You know, wouldn't it be nice if we could just be left alone? But there's no promise we'll be left alone to do the work of God. And we're going to have to recognize, settle it in your soul tonight, that you're going to go on and serve God, even if it hair lips everyone. That doesn't mean we are are antagonistic in our attitude or our spirit, but what it does mean is recognizing that it's not always going to be easy. By the way, one of the marks of narcissism is the belief that the whole world is a narrative that you're the star of, and it's everybody's responsibility as a supporting role to help you accomplish your ambitions and goals. And part of in your heart and mind maturing as a Christian is recognizing that you can't always look to people around you uh, to pave the way and to make things easy. You've got to serve God anyway. I, I see in spite of enemies, but notice the second thing tonight. It says this, verse 3. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? Meaning they had tiled houses, tiled ceilings. And this house lie waste. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, he looks at these individuals who were pouring far more into their earthly dwellings than they were into the things of God. And he's trying to stir them up to a sense of of deep conviction 
And dare we say shame over what they were neglecting in spite of what they were prioritizing. And we could maybe say it this way, in spite of enemies, but number two, in spite of apathy. He's essentially saying, don't you care that the work of God is left undone? Now, we ought to all care that the work of God is left undone when it's left undone. But I will just tell you this, and and I learned this as a pastor, but I don't guess you'd have to be a pastor to learn this. If you serve Lord in any way, you have to recognize this fact and truth. Not everybody's going to care as much about what God's doing in your life as you do. It's nice to believe they will. And that's one of the things, by the way, that's great about parents. Uh, and and I, when I had kids, I learned this. I care, uh, I cared about things with my kids. I didn't care about anyone else's kids. And I began to understand why parents would tell you stories about completely unimportant things. Because to them it was important because it was their child. And one of the great things about the parents that God gives you in life and people that love you is they'll care about what you care about. But you're not always going to have that in life. Let's say it this way. If enemies reflects a lack of security and peace, then apathy reflects a lack of support and passion. Not everybody's always going to care about what God's doing in your life the way that you do. And if if you have to have this sense of communal investment to serve God, I'll just go ahead and tell you, you're not going to serve God very long. You're going to have to grow comfortable with the fact that very often you're going to care more than anyone else about what God's doing in your life. And that may seem cold, it may seem unkind, it may seem unfair, and we can all go out and scream at the moon together. And actually, tonight we could scream at, at Jupiter and Venus as well. I don't know if you saw them. But it doesn't change the material fact that you're going to have to settle in your heart that your level of commitment is not dependent upon other people's level of commitment. And it's not because we are setting an example, although certainly we are. It's not because we're going to carry all the load, although certainly we may sometimes carry most of it. But it's simply because God deserves it. We ought to care because God deserves it. We don't care because it's a communal thing. It's peer pressure. What does everybody care about? We care because if it's the work of God, it's worthy of our greatest devotion. If it's the work of God, if we're pouring our life into the things of God, nobody may ever see you pass out that track. Nobody ever may praise you for witnessing to that person. Nobody ever may praise you for a ministry of prayer in which you're bearing uh, your fellow believers up to the Lord. No one ever may notice. doesn't matter. It's not what it's for. You may not get any help in it the way that you wish that you would. doesn't matter. That's not what it's for. I would say in, in spite of the apathy, but then notice verses 6 and 7. He says this, ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I want to make a, a passing statement before I preach my message uh, in this point tonight. And I just want to say this. You say, preacher, we've got an inflation problem in our country. We've got a righteousness problem in our country. I know they're spending us into oblivion. I know that. I understand they're sending a trillion dollars over to a war that if they hadn't told you you should care about it, you wouldn't care about. I understand that. I understand that they're supporting every single bankrupt and broken and reckless and irresponsible country in the world. I know that. But at the end of the day, very for a long time, we've lived in a country that had often foolish leadership, and God blessed us in spite of it. And I'll just tell you this, that when a, when a country thoroughly secularizes, God says, okay, good luck. 
And that's a lot of what we're experiencing in our country today. But can I just remind you of this? Even though there were some folks that in, in, a, in disingenuousness were not pouring into the work of God, there were some people that were, but felt it stifled by a lack of provision. Let me say it this way, in spite of enemies and apathy, but also in spite of poverty. Let's say it this way, a lack of sponsorship and provision. Maybe I shouldn't use the word provision. There's always provision in the work of God, but a lack of plenty. And I will tell you, you were very blessed in our church. We really are. We have an embarrassment of provision. God's been so good to us. And so this isn't any reflection of, of you all necessarily in the sense of giving or where our church is at financially. But I'm just telling you this. There's going to be times you're going to have to sacrifice to do the work of God. And we, we have done this thing where we have established a standard of living and then tried to rubber stamp God's name on it and said if we cross below that threshold, if, it, if serving God ever means doing without something we desire, if serving God ever means that we have to give up something that we enjoy in our life, well, then somehow, some way, God's failed us. That's the same wrong-headed perspective that the televangelist snake oil salesman, the name it and claim it prosperity gospel crowd is trying to feed you that are telling you that you get to set the standard of God's blessing, and if he doesn't meet it, he's disappointed you. The fact is, often in your life, you're going to have to serve God, and it may mean you watch others prosper that are doing less for God. But you're going to have to get your heart settled on what this thing is all about. I'd a lot rather lay up treasures in heaven. And I'm very blessed. I'm, I'm embarrassingly blessed in what God has done in my life. But I'm just telling you that we better get our focus, our priority. You know, we preached on this just on Sunday night out of Psalm 62. If riches increase, set not your heart on it. You know why? Because it don't last long. <laughs> don't yoke your heart to it. Recognize what this is about. So I see the project here in the first seven verses. But then I want you to notice the process. Okay, preacher, you've thoroughly browbeat me. I'm ready. Let's do the work of God. How do we do it? Well, there's a simple process. That is prescribed here. He says this in verse 8. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Can I tell you one of the maddening things I experienced as a younger pastor? Uh, I, I tried to surround myself with people that I felt like had done well the right way. And I tried to befriend pastors that I felt like they had a touch of God on their ministry and on their life. And that they had seen, uh, however we wanted to find success, they had healthy churches. And I would try to find occasions to talk to him, and I would ask him, you know, what, what do you believe you've done to help build this ministry? And I would ask him things like, when was the moment that you felt like things really, you know, a watershed moment, things really broke loose, your ministry really grew? And without fail, every one of them gave me the same maddening answer. They all said, I don't know. I just kept serving the Lord. And after my blood pressure went down, I learned the wisdom in that statement, which is this. There is no special ingredient. There is no secret sauce. There is nothing that the next latest, greatest New York Times bestseller is going to reveal to you. It is a simple recipe for having our lives being used of God. There's two things noted here. Number one, notice the accumulation of the resources. It would be like God to say it this way, wouldn't it? He says, go up to the mountain and bring wood. Now, I want you to remember they're building in the wreckage of a city. 
But God doesn't want leftovers. So he tells them to go up to the mountain and cut down fresh timber and to bring it for the work of God. I think one of the tragedies of much of Christianity uh, here today is that we have we've built with other men's timbers. And we have built on a foundation, stood on the shoulders of what great men have done. And I don't think we should content ourselves to that. Man, God's still working. God's still moving. How, why, listen, why, why would we settle for rehearsals when we can have a refreshing? Why, why would we settle for stories when, when we can have His presence? And I don't say that in reflection to stories in the Word of God. I say it in a reflection to resting on the laurels of past generations, noble as though they may have been. That's not our calling. It's to go up to the mountain and to bring wood. It's interesting. He says go up to the mountain and he didn't want it from the valley and he didn't want it from the plains. He wanted it from a higher place. And can I just make this passing statement? We're going to have to get in touch with God to get the strength we need to pour our lives out unto him. There is no shortcut around that. And I believe me, men have been trying for a long time to find a way to exclude God from his work. Trying to find a way to do this thing without God having to have a part in it and get so much credit for it. But the truth is, if we want a real work of God in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, in our families, we're going to have to go up to where he dwells. We're going to have to commune with him. We're going to have to, we're going to have to have a deep, meaningful relationship with him. We're going to have to get fresh wood to bring for the work of God. And then notice the second thing, and that's the application of the resources. Boy, this is good. You ready? This is deep. Build the house. Build the house. Don't merely draw these resources and then let them rot over on the side. Much discontentment comes from a glut of religion without any expending of, of the resources God has given us. I don't know about you, man. I, I've, <laughs> these buffets. What's the matter with our society? Go to these buffets and it's just like, eat till you have to call somebody to come get you, you know? And, uh, something you've noticed. You ever go and eat a big meal? You ever notice how you get sleepy afterwards? You get lethargic afterwards. I don't know about you, but if I can't sleep, I get cranky afterwards. I'm just talking about it messes me up if I go and have a glut of food and don't do something to burn off the energy, the calories associated with it. You know, there's a parallel. Uh, we, we have turned, I was talking to my wife about this in, today, in fact, that there is a, a, a service industry attitude towards the work of God where we view church as a place where we can come and get provided the best service. And the criteria that we have, the prism through which we look at the success of a church, is how good of service do they provide to their customers. It's a wrong-headed way of thinking, and it also completely short-circuits what the church is. Listen, the church is not a consumer industry. It's not what it is. It's not a commercial enterprise. If it was, we wouldn't do anything the way that we do it. The fact of the matter is, church is is the family of God, the people of God, being knit together in covenant and promise to carry out the work of God. It's not an organization. You've heard this before. It's an organism. 
But it, it's, it's crushed New Testament Christianity, this notion that church is a, have you ever wondered how it is that some, and I'm not, I'm not trying to have a bad spirit or a bad attitude about, but have you ever wondered how, how is it possible? How is it possible that 4,000 people just happened it was the will of God for them to be called to the same place? How does that happen? Uh, well, truth is, it didn't happen that way. It's just that ministry provided the best service. They had the best parking. They had the best coffee bar. They always started on time. Everything was nice and tight. The music was always good. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. And people that were looking for the best entity or enterprise to invest in walked through the door and said, this is it. This is a complete perversion of the concept of the New Testament church. You know, one of the things you find immediately, I mean, I'm talking about immediately. I'm talking God institutes a church and before he has even sat down, there are problems in it. And pretty much every New Testament epistle is solving people problems in a New Testament church. People say, well, we need a revival of New Testament Christianity. And I would say amen to that to a certain degree. But if you think that that'll mean there won't be any problems, you're wrong. Because all through New Testament Christianity, from its inception to this very day, there are problems. Why are there problems? Because there's people. How do we get rid of the problems, preacher? Get rid of the people. That's how. You want no problems? Get rid of the people. It's real simple. And then you'll sit there discontented, sour, and miserable, staring in the mirror at how that even you yourself does not satisfy. How did I get here? Where have I been? Did we drive here tonight? No, what do we do? <laughs> Build the house. Build the house. Take all of that that God is doing and working in your heart, your mind, your life, and put it to work in your life. This is part of the intimate relationship between the Word of God and the people of God, is that the Word of God speaks directly to our life. And we, rather than in pride bowing up, getting angry, scrutinizing, criticizing, we just accept and listen to the voice of God from the pages of God's Word, and apply it to our life. If we don't apply it, there is a glut. And, you know, Christ rebuked Israel as a people. He talked about their ears growing growing fat, you know, and, and heavy, and, and, and their hearts having, having, you know, fat over them. Talked about how there was almost a callousness to them. Well, why? Because they had learned how to traffic in speculative religion. And as long as we're trafficking in speculative religion, it's going to continue to corrode our love of Christ. It must be practical. So we see the process. And finally, and I'm done tonight, notice the end of verse 8. There's a promise associated with this. I'm glad there's a promise. I'm glad there's a promise, especially because I get to end on this. So hopefully you won't be as mad at me. What does he say? Go up to the mountain and bring wood, build the house. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Notice a couple things here. One, notice God's presence is promised. He says, I... I will take pleasure in it. In other words, God says, I'll come down and I'll meet with you at that temple. I'll come down and I'll be in that place. What a wondrous thing it is that if we will just not only as a body of believers, but also likewise in our own personal walk with the Lord, if we will be willing to allow God to work in our life, he will work in our life. And his presence can be real and palpable and powerful Within us, and certainly that's true in a body of believers as well. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion, debate, and everybody. Facebook's been all anybody's done 
on Facebook. It's nothing but a million people that can't even spell revival arguing about revival. All it's been, people that haven't read their Bible in in 10 years arguing about Asbury in Kentucky and all this nonsense and and, and these things. And, And you say, preacher, what do you think? I think we need the Lord. Now, I have opinions about all that stuff, and there's a lot of things very troubling about a lot of what's going on up there. But I, listen, I, I, that's not even what I intend to say tonight. I merely intend to say this. If we'll put work into our walk with God, he will bless it with his presence. He will meet with us. And what we need, no matter what you choose to define it as, is we need the presence of God in our life, in our church, in our families, not anything emotional, not anything manufactured, not something sanctioned, but we need the Lord. And I will tell you this, if God will be present in our lives, it doesn't matter whether 1,500 people show up for it, it doesn't matter whether people endorse it or agree with it or whatever it might be, uh, we'll have what is most vital and necessary. I see God's presence spoken of. And then he says this, he says, I will take pleasure in it. God says, I'll be pleased with that. I want God to be pleased with my life. It's interesting. If we're just going on a parade of homes, Jerusalem temple edition, this temple that they would build would be the most paltry. In fact, in all of Israel's history, of course, there were three temples. There was Solomon's temple, the restoration temple, and then Herod's temple, which was really an expansion upon that temple. Prior to any of those, there was, of course, the tabernacle, which was transient in nature. One of these days, there'll be a millennial temple. I think it can be rightly construed that there will also be a tribulation temple that will be polluted by the Antichrist. But of all the temples, this one's the smallest. So much so that when they built it, the Bible describes how that the young men rejoiced and the old men wept. Because they remembered what had been while the young men were excited about what had happened. I will just tell you this. God was pleased with it. He met with them and blessed them in that temple. It was small. It was more plainly adorned. It wasn't a wonder of the ancient world. None of that mattered to God. It was the fact that it was genuine, sincere, and his people had gathered there to worship him. I will just tell you that great peace will come in your life when you learn to be content with God's pleasure. If he's pleased, man, I'm content. That's And I'm trying to be more and more and more at that place in my life, in my ministry, in my home, day by day, that if, if God will be pleased, who am I to be displeased? If If I can just have God be pleased with what I'm doing in my life, that should be enough for anybody. Well, he says, if we'll do it, there'll be God's pleasure. But then there's a the last thing. He says this, I will be glorified, saith the Lord of hosts. God's praise will be there. See, here's, here's the thing. Where God works, God gets glory. If you want to know whether God's working, look around and try to find out who's getting the glory. If it's not God, then it's not God. And it's not to suggest there's men that with forked tongues that might do lip service to God and not really be of the Lord. I understand that. But I'm saying this, where there is a work of God and it is a genuine work of God, there will be praise for God. And I would say in your life and mine, if we want God to be praised in us and through us, 
we're going to have to build the house. And again, no reflection, no reference to this physical place or even the, the visible growth of this ministry, but talking about the work of God in your life. You want God to be praised? He's not praised in dead, stagnate Christianity. He's praised whenever his life is manifest through us as we submit to him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. And I want to give you a moment tonight. If God spoke to your heart to meet him in the altar, I've preached my message. I'm not going to preach it again. But I do want to offer this warm invitation to say, if God touched your heart, won't you meet him down here? Let him have his will and way in your life. Father, bless this invitation, Lord. I'm so thankful that you love us, that you met with us. Bless this time together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.